0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: Hello and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Juliana Ferreira. I'm an associate professor of pulmonary and critical care at the University of Sao Paulo and a member of the podcast team here at Scholarly. Today, we'll be discussing a paper published at ATS Scholar entitled Developing and Implementing Non-Invasive Ventilator Training in Haiti During the COVID-19 Pandemic. We will be joined by Dr. Peter Jackson, the first author of the paper. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Do you mind introducing yourself?
0: Of course. My name is Peter Jackson. I'm an assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care at Virginia Commonwealth University, and I'm also uh, the director of global health research for the departments of medicine and surgery at the Virginia Commonwealth University.
1: Kenya, I'd like to start asking you what was the motivation to do this study, where this idea came from?
0: Yeah, thanks for that question. Honestly, the motivation really came from the Department of Health of Haiti, who communicated with a nonprofit that one of my collaborators, um, Dr. Bart Green, had started called Metashare Haiti. And they brought up the need for additional training in non-invasive ventilation and really invasive ventilation as well to prepare for the potential of a COVID-19 surge in the country. So they contacted him and then through some of my other longtime collaborators at the University of Miami, I was contacted to assist with the project.
1: So I was going to ask you, but you kind of touched on this already, about the partnership between US universities and, and Haiti, apparently the Ministry of Health. So this is something that was established before the beginning of the study, correct?
0: Correct. You know, I'll say that I'm not as familiar with University of Miami's partnership just because I am not there and not part of the Institute. But uh, my understanding is that there's been long-term collaboration with Bart Green, who's actually a neurosurgeon um, and in charge of a lot of the global health research at the University of Miami and Bernard Meds Hospital and other sites in Haiti. And so there's been a long, longstanding relationship with the university.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your co-authors? How, how did you end up together in this amazing project? What, what brought this particular group of investigators together?
0: Yeah, definitely. It's a, well, it's a story that a lot of people probably have. The world is relatively small, and the group of people that do global health within the pulmonary and critical care world is even a little bit smaller. Dr. Trishal Siddharthan, who is a second author on this paper, and I actually went to residency together. Uh, in internal medicine at Yale. So we've been good friends and he served as a collaborator at times a mentor for a lot of my projects, particularly during a Fogarty fellowship I had in Uganda. And so he's now at the University of Miami. He was approached because of his wealth of experience in implementation science in low middle income countries when this project was sort of just beginning to be discussed and he reached out to me to take part.
1: I got it. Yes, the word can be small sometimes. Yeah. Going to the paper and the report that you did at ATS Scholar, you, you mentioned that the decision to include mostly physicians and nurses in the training program. So this was a training program for healthcare workers in Haiti, but mostly physicians and nurses was informed by conversations with Haiti physicians and that they don't have a lot of respiratory therapists around so most of the managing of mechanical ventilation is done by physicians and nurses and and that makes a lot of sense but how did you decide who to invite to be part of the program were these the participants were they leaders in their hospitals were they named suggested by the ministry of health how did that happen
0: yeah, actually, a little bit of all of the things you said. So the first step really was conversations between the senior author Alexander Fort, Trishal Siddarthan, and Bart Green, primarily with some of the contacts of uh, Medishare Haiti in Haiti. So with that discussion, we were able to really understand kind of who the key stakeholders were in managing non-invasive ventilation. And while there's very little experience with non-invasive ventilation, Within Haiti, there certainly is, you know, some hospitals that have the capability. And so they were able to let us know, you know, generally who manages those settings, who adjusts the ventilator. And so that was really what informed the inclusion of nurses and physicians. The particular people were then directed largely by the Ministry of Health. So a number of them were leaders of intensive care units at various hospitals throughout Haiti or people who are interested in you know kind of championing this project and and really getting non invasive ventilation to be more widely used in the country
1: awesome and you also mentioned that the training was paired with the distribution of NIV ventilators by the ministry of health and that makes a lot of sense to me i mean the impact of delivering non invasive ventilator is likely to be much higher if you're training the healthcare workers who are gonna use that. Can you tell us a little more about the pairing and how did that work?
0: Certainly, yeah. So in some ways the project, it sounded like to me, and again, I wasn't necessarily involved at the inception of the project, but my understanding was that one of the starting points was the desire to donate a number of ventilators to Haiti. And so it was almost as if the desire to donate the ventilators led to the understanding that there really needed to be a little bit more training, you know, and responsible stewardship of of those ventilators and ensuring that we were setting up the the programs for some sustainability and some more success. And so I think that was kind of the inception. Those ventilators, they really weren't ventilators. They were, you know, non-invasive ventilators that were capable of BiPAP and CPAP. And those were donated through contributions of MetaShare Haiti. So this was kind of a piggybacked program on top of that.
1: Yeah, that's great. Can you tell us a little bit about the training program itself, how it was organized, and, and how did you design the idea of doing it in three days and, and pairing uh, simulation with didactics?
0: Yeah, definitely. So... You know, I I was surprised as I started to, when I was approached by the project and started to think about how I would best support um, the delivery of these devices and try to help create a curriculum along with my co-authors about the lack of evidence for the best way to deliver a curriculum. But what I did find was a fair number of publications related to invasive ventilation. And there has been some work that's found that A combination of in-person, particularly in-person simulation, along with didactic teaching has the best knowledge retention and best satisfaction from participants in training programs with invasive ventilation. So kind of based upon that, we decided that that would be the modality that we would try to, you know, repeat with non-invasive ventilation. The next step was looking through, you know, best practices and guidelines from the ATS and ERS. Or was a 2017 was the last update that I saw on non-invasive ventilation and looking for the conditions in which it was usually warranted. And then starting to design our curriculum based upon that with both, you know, lectures and instruction as well as um, simulation.
1: Yeah, I got it. Can you tell us a little bit of what you measured? So you did this training and you had pre and post measurements. Can you tell us? what you did with the participants.
0: Sure. So to assess the impact of our training, we decided to measure both knowledge and confidence of the 36 participants that took part. And we did that by administering knowledge-based tests that was really a modified version of some CME, open access content from medmastery.com as well as also incorporating other questions related to COVID-19 and some other diseases we felt like would be particularly relevant to Haiti after discussing that with some of our other team members and other physicians in Haiti. And then the confidence assessment was on a Likert scale. We measured you know, multiple domains of confidence as well as previous experience with non-invasive ventilation. And we did those identical tests pre and post intervention or curriculum.
1: Okay. And um, how many participants did you include in the study?
0: We had 36 participants from across Haiti.
1: And they were nurses and physicians and I think one respiratory therapist. Is that correct?
0: Correct. We had seven nurses and then the rest, we had one nurse anesthetist, one respiratory therapist, and the rest were all physicians.
1: I wanted to ask you about two barriers that must have been challenging for you. The first one is, and, and you mentioned a lot of details of that in the paper, but I wanted to hear it from you. How challenging was it to, to do this face-to-face in the middle of the, the COVID pandemic? And, and you tell us in the paper that, you, I mean, you, you were very careful in how to do it, but were you worried that that the course might not happen or did you at any point consider doing it virtually because of the pandemic?
0: Yeah, that's a really excellent question. And one that we actually wrestled with quite a bit prior to deciding on an in-person curriculum. The decision to deliver it in person was one based upon the previous sort of review of the literature that I had talked about that indicated that retention and knowledge delivery was a little bit better for invasive ventilation. we thought that would be similar with non-invasive ventilation. And then additionally, it was really at the desire of the local health authorities. They were really, you know, preferred to have in-person education so that we could use these machines, show them how they worked, really troubleshoot in, in simulation, how how to apply the machines. And, and I think that made sense. So ultimately, we decided to deliver it in person. It was certainly a challenge. There were a number of, you know, concerns about whether or not we would be able to go easily, whether or not we would be able to get all of our COVID testing done to travel safely, and then ensuring that there was compliance with masking within the training site and having as much you know social distancing as possible and ventilation to reduce risk. One other piece that I think really helped us to feel confident that we were doing this in a way that was in accordance with the local health authorities direction was that there was someone overseeing the entire um, simulation and so we checked with them really about all of our protocols so that we were really mindful of reducing risk of COVID-19 during delivery of the curriculum and luckily we did not have anybody who who got sick or any, or any transmission.
1: This is great to hear and I, I think it's amazing that you were able to do it face-to-face. I, I agree that it's probably I mean, for the trainee, I think it's feels more real in some sense and you actually doing something with the ventilator, there's a, there's a lot of benefit to that. The other challenge that I think you, you probably faced and you also mentioned in the paper is having to deliver all the didactics and the sessions in English and have it uh, real life translation to French and Creole. Do you think this was at some point a barrier for training success? Did you fear that this would decrease the efficacy of the the training course?
0: You know, I did. I think that's a very good point. And I think, you know, it was one of the the challenges with delivering the content within Haiti. We were lucky to have some colleagues who are from Haiti and speak Haitian Creole and French who were able to deliver their didactics in Haitian Creole or French. Um, The respiratory therapist uh, Dr. Jerry DeGraff, who is one of our co-authors, lives in Haiti and is a respiratory therapist in Haiti. He was kind of our local champion of this project. And so he was able to you know, deliver his content. So we were able to reduce some of that barrier for at least some of the content. But certainly myself and some of the other trainers are not fluent in the local language. I think the thing that we noticed most about delivering the content was that the time it takes to deliver content is a lot longer when you have to pause and then allow for real-time translation and so i think that you know the amount of didactic content we could deliver the amount of team-based instruction the the classes took longer than we we thought (laughs) and i think in you know in retrospect and in designing it either shortening those or trying to come up with other um, novel ways to decrease that is reasonable or just extending the course to be quite honest
1: yeah, I, I think this is really relevant because, I mean, if we, if we, at some point, someone decides to replicate the study in other countries, if we know that, that translation was efficient in terms of doing the job of delivering the, the communicating the content, then you, then you can bring it to other countries that speak other languages and not be restricted to countries where, where the healthcare workers would speak English. And I, I think that's, that's really important.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, and and we do talk about in our discussion, we're certainly not making the claim that our curriculum was three days. Um, A lot of that was because of the time restraints for the participants, as we mentioned, many of them were leaders of intensive care units. Um, And so they were very busy to be able to take part in the training. And while I think there's some benefit in delivering uh, a lot of content in a short time, and that may make it more feasible in some locations, you know we're not claiming that that is the best way and so the next step in a lot of a lot of ways is to try to see if this would work in other settings could be emulated so that you could expand non-invasive ventilation training and within those tailoring it in different different durations i think is very reasonable
1: yeah so looking at the results of the pre-intervention survey when when we're measuring confidence you had a a, a mean confidence of 2.75, which is in a Likert point scale, I would say it's close to three, usually like a, a neutral choice. No, you don't disagree, you don't completely, uh, completely uncomfortable or completely comfortable with that, so and right in the middle. And it went up almost one point after the training to 3.7, and then that's close to four. So we could say that they went from neutral to, I don't know, pretty confident. Is this what you expected? Was this the the goal?
0: Yeah, I I think so. I think it's always a little bit challenging to define what you consider a successful intervention when you're looking at um, subjects' confidence. There were some previous uh, studies that I was able to look over, one of emergency medical services and doing a CPR training program and looking at the confidence using CPR, so at least similar durations. And they had a similar increase in confidence. I think that increase was statistically significant for what that's worth. And, you know, it's always complicated on an ordinal scale, but, you know, I think them moving to feeling somewhat comfortable using non-invasive ventilation would be considered a successful intervention.
1: Yes, I agree. I think it's it's really relevant. And, but you do show in your figure two that a, a few participants decrease their confidence after training, which is a, a little surprising. And why do you think this is so, was this something of, because I think it's something we've seen, everyone who is an educator has seen this. For some trainees, when they learn what they should have known, they, for some reason they, they might realize how much they didn't know before. So confidence can actually go down after you go into training. Do you wanna comment on this?
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. I, again, I mean, I can only speculate as to why those individuals may have decreased in their confidence. We, we did not follow up with specific individuals to ask, you know, why they might have had changes in score. One thing that we were very cognizant of, I will just say, is that we did not want to make any of the participants feel as if non-invasive ventilation was a replacement for invasive ventilation. And so we had an entire didactic session on non-invasive ventilation failure and contraindications to non-invasive ventilation. And I think that that may have informed some of the participants of the risks of non-invasive ventilation and perhaps made them feel less confident. Again, that's just speculative. And for the vast majority of trainees, 77% had an increase in their mean overall confidence. So I do think most people had had an increase and only a couple went down, but That may have been why.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Looking at the the knowledge scores, you do mention that before training, the the average score was really low, average of 25% correct answers, and the improvement was was seen for all participants, and it it was a 40% absolute improvement, which is really impressive. But mm-hmm. you do mention in the paper that the percent correct, even after the training, is relatively low. Now, again, I know I'm going to ask you to speculate on this, but I, I, was, I was wondering po- about possible cases for that to, to happen. Do you think that the evaluation itself may have been too complex or too difficult? Or one thing that struck me was cultural differences because I, I, I have the impression that the format of CME questions is something that if you're if you trained in the US, you've seen those questions your, your whole training, right? When even before you're doing the, I don't know, the, the USMLE steps and then during residency, you will always see the, the format of those questions. Do you think that could have been different for, for doctors in another cultural background that could have, I don't know, impacted how they they performed on this test?
0: You know, you sort of answered that question for me. I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, one of the things that we saw and we did not do with this paper, although we kind of looked at it kind of privately, some of the questions were answered more, you know, across the board, there was a less, a lower percentage of people who were getting them correct. And one of the things I kind of noticed is some of the ones that asked for multiple answers seemed to be a little bit of outlier. So I think, you know, looking into how exams are administered within Haiti, perhaps exam questions are not usually structured in ways where there's multiple answers or, you know, all of the above or those kinds of choices. And so I think that that could have been one of the things that led to the overall low score. Again, I would also say, though, that that these questions were also pretty complex. To a certain extent, that was intentional. You know, I, I feel like anytime you're going to present some new management tool, there is a risk that it could be used incorrectly. And so I think using you know CME based questions, which a lot of these were, they were they were based off of CME content, modified slightly, is, is really ensuring that physicians and healthcare practitioners there, are, you know, familiar with all of the content and really, you know, practicing safely for all the patients that are there. We didn't want them to feel as if, you know, taking a course in this and uh, non-invasive ventilation gave them um, absolute kind of license to use it without making the, the questionnaires complicated, I suppose.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think, on, um, I mean, the, the flip coin of that is if the, the test was very, very easy, then you wouldn't be able to see the improvement. So, uh, I mean, we're always like balancing these this two at uh, several components to decide on, on how to assess knowledge.
0: And certainly I think the next step, you know, in tailoring this, this content, which, which is the plan, is to go through, look at questions, look at outliers, and then, you know, seek more input from our local colleagues within Haiti or within whatever setting we might want to try to expand this curriculum to to ensure that the questions seem appropriate or appropriately worded or within structure that is, you know, familiar culturally to the participants.
1: Yeah, that that would be a, a a great improvement or change that would make it even more applicable at some in some levels. Yeah. Do you did you at any point plan or think that maybe these participants in this first cohort of of the study could eventually replicate what they learned and and teach other uh, healthcare workers in a trained trainer modality? Is this part of the plan or not really?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that's a reality um, about this cohort is that we did have a lot of disruption because of the current events in Haiti, which have, you know, created some instability as well as You know, natural disaster that's that's taken a lot of the attention from, you know, the participants within this study. But preliminarily, our plan was to continue to follow this up with additional trainings and hopefully expand to invasive ventilation in a longer course. And so um, there's certainly room for improvement and, you know, and, and, and making some some adjustments as we go within within the training. And we are actively following up these participants and um, speaking with them about their confidence using non-invasive ventilation and, you know, their knowledge retention. So that is actively ongoing, but, you know, additional training is certainly necessary to ensure sustainability.
1: Yeah. I have a final question to you. Do you you think this training course could be implemented in other countries and other low and middle income countries? Do you think if, if so, would we need to translate it or would you use um, real time translation and, and how complex would would that be? I mean, how complex is it to, to replicate this course and the biggest barrier you, you think would be for scaling up training programs like this one to other countries where it's much needed?
0: I think we absolutely can use these kinds of curriculums in in other countries I mean, obviously, I think we did do groundwork to try to, you know, get a needs assessment, have an understanding of who the stakeholders were that adjust ventilation machines. Um, we had a lot of assistance from our colleagues in MediShare Haiti to make sure that we were training the appropriate individuals that we thought could hopefully disseminate this information. But I do think that the takeaway from this is that with you know, modifying some open access CME based content, incorporating a lot of evidence based content for non-invasive ventilation, and a lot of work by the by the study team, you are able to to produce a multimodal curriculum that led to some really impressive increases in confidence and and knowledge. So I think that it could get rolled out to other countries. I think each country um, and culture is going to have its own unique challenges to, to sort of implementing this, but I certainly think it can serve as a framework. I know that personally, I'm exploring with one of my colleagues whether or not we might be able to um, do something somewhat similar in Pakistan and uh, with some of the hospitals that that he is you know familiar with and has really strong relationships. That's absolutely necessary if you're going to roll this kind of thing out is to have people who have really strong relationships to create kind of follow-up and, and local champions there. But, you know, I hope that individuals who read it feel empowered to try something like this. And I'm happy to share our, our curriculum and as much information as I can to try to disseminate this kind of program.
1: That's awesome. I'll remind our listeners that Dr. Jackson's email is in the paper. So if you want to get the details of the training, you can email him. Dr. Jackson, it was great having you here at Scholarly today. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I would also just like to, again, thank MediShare Haiti, Bernard Metz Hospital, and all of my co-authors and all of the the people that supported this project and, and allowed it to happen.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org slash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.